Howdy, everybody. The following is a recorded discussion with Chaplain Raymond, our Attorney General for the Republic State of Texas. Today was the fifth in a series we've been doing on The Authority of Law, which is a book by Charles A. Wiseman. Today we went over historical usage of an enacting clause. Hope you enjoy. This is February 18th on the Authority of Law course, and we're ready to start. We're into the area of dealing with the enacting clause, and we covered it in general yesterday. We're going into specific examples today of the historical usage of the enacting clause. Is there anybody that cannot hear me? An enacting clause of some sort has long been used to preface a law, order, or command, so as to declare or make known to all concerned the source of the law and thereby the authority for that law or order to exist. It is, in effect, a statement of the name of the authority that it enacted the law, affixed to the law, and or on its face, to make it clear that all which follows is to be law from the authority so named. The almost unbroken the almost unbroken custom centuries has been to preface laws with a statement in some form declaring the enacting authority. The purpose of an enacting clause of a statute is to identify it as an act of legislation by expressing on its face the authority behind the act. The use of an enacting clause is one of the oldest concepts used in the process of issuing or enacting laws, edicts, and commands to, to identify the source and authority for the law. That was the tail end of yesterday's class. It was perhaps first used by God himself when he issued a command directive or law. Thus, when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, it was made known to Israel the source and the authority of these laws. And it was in the Ten Commandments, and he said, I am the Lord thy God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. That which is italicized is essentially the enacting clause for the Ten Commandments. It states or identifies the source of the laws that follow. They came not just from just any God, but from the God which brought Israel out of Egypt. The point is, it's fairly specific. That which follows the statement of authority is the body of the law. When additional laws were given to Moses, he made a statement of the authority of the laws. He would say, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgment which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. He would say, And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded. And he also said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded be done. These were all enacting clauses for the commands or laws which followed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through these statements, Israel knew the authority behind the laws. They were not just something Moses made up. 
They did not come from the Pharaoh or the king of Mesopotamia. They were not laws of Baal, the God. They came from Jehovah God. Sometimes such statements also appeared after the laws of God were read or stated as with the food laws which concluded, For I am the Lord your God. See also the laws, look at Leviticus. But in any case, Israel always knew by what authority the laws they were to follow were enacted. Even before this time, when God dealt with the patriarchs, we see God making a formal declaration of his identity and thus authority. When Abraham was 90, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. At the outset of his, outset of his communication with Abraham, God makes a statement of his identity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thus it was known to Abraham and to all of us who read scripture that the terms of the covenant that followed were by the authority of Almighty God and not of any man or king or government. This concept of an enacting authority was used by every king and ruler when issuing their laws, decrees, or proclamation. <clears throat> proclamations. We thus see that when Cyrus, king of Persia, issued his written propagation for the return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, he prefaced the proclamation with these words, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. We again see a type of enacting clause in the letter of King Artaxerxes to Ezra, authorizing him to bring the people of Israel to Jerusalem and directing what should be done and observed. The letter starts as follows. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel, etc. The Caesars and emperors of the Roman Empire had always prefaced their edicts and commands with a statement containing their name to show the source and authority for the law. Thus, when Constantine issued his edict to suppress soothsayers, it started by stating, The Emperor Constantine Augustus to Maximus, No soothsayer may approach his neighbor's threshold, even for any other purpose. In the early Middle Ages in Europe, 476 to 1000 A.D., the Merovingian and the Carolingian kings would often form councils to help regulate civil or ecclesiastical matters. The decrees would often name the king and council and state, We do ordain. The statement of enacting authority was always used in the royal decrees and commands of the kings of England. Thus, the Magna Carta 1215 begins with the name of the authority which adopted it and issued it. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, and so on. 
the statutes of Westminster, which were issued in 1275 by King Edward I, begins, These be the acts of King Edward, son to King Henry, made at Westminster. In the Ordinance of Staples, 1353, by Edward III, the decree begins, Edward, by the grace of God, King of England and of France, and Lord of Ireland, to all sheriffs, mayors, bailiffs, ministers, and other our faithful people to whom these present letters shall come, greeting, whereas. In the letters of patent to John Cabot in 1496, granting the use and specifying the conditions for certain lands discovered in America, it states, Henry, by the grace of God, King of England and France and Lord of Ireland, to all whom these presents shall come, greeting. Well, when one would read these documents, it was immediately known from what source the orders or laws came from. Thus, what was the authority behind them? When Parliament developed into a true lawmaking body around 1440, their use of an enacting clause became a regular part of English statutes to this day. A typical act of Parliament from the reign of King George III, about 1792, reads as follows. Be it enacted by the King's most excellent majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons in this present Parliament assembled, and by the authority of the same, that there shall be no drawback or allowance paid on the exportation side. This enacting clause made it known to all by what authority the law before them was enacted. The American colonists were, of course, well familiar with parliamentary forms and procedure in passing laws. When self-representative bodies started to appear in America, an enacting style was also used by them. The First Assembly of Virginia was convened July 30, 1619 by Governor Yeardley under the authority of the Virginia Company and marks the beginning of representative government in America. The Assembly framed the Ordinance for Virginia July 24, 1621, which starts with these words. An ordinance and constitution of the treasurer, council, and company in England for a council of state and general assembly to all people to whom these presents shall come, be seen or heard. This document thus starts off by declaring the authority for the law which follows. In Another famous document of self-government, the Mayflower Compact, begins as follows. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. The compact sets forth some general principles that are to constitute a government in the colony, which those of the colony are to be under and follow. As to the authority by which this is established, it states, 
we whose names are underwritten. In 1692, the Massachusetts Bay Province enacted a law for the punishing of various capital crimes, which included idolatry, witchcraft, blasphemy, high treason, murder, poisoning, sodomy, bestiality, rape, arson, and piracy. <clears throat> the act is found in the original statute book reads as follows. Chapter 19, an act for the punishing of capital offenders, the title that is. Be it ordained and enacted by the governor, council, and representatives and general court assembly and by the authority of the same, that all and every of the crimes and offense in this present act this present act hereafter mentioned be and hereby are declared to be felony. And every person or persons committing any of the said crimes or offenses being thereof legally convicted shall be adjudged to suffer the pains of death. The enacting clause appeared right after the title but before the body of the law. All laws from the assembly were prefaced in such, with such an enacting clause. Thus every person reading them knew from what source the laws came and by what authority they existed. Likewise, an act regulating, mar regulating marriages in the colony of Carolina in 1715 had this enacting style. Being enacted by the Plantation and Lord Proprietors Carolina, proprietors of Carolina by and with the consent of this present grand assembly and the authority thereof that any two persons desirous to be joined together in the holy estate of matrimony etc. In the Pennsylvania Charter of Privileges 1701 the document starts out by declaring the source and authority for the provisions of the charter William Penn, proprietary and governor of the province of Pennsylvania and territories, nearly all of the various colonial assemblies, proprietors, governors, and councils, which established laws, charters, and governments, declared their authority in their decrees. At the time of the American Revolution, the colonists regarded themselves as free and independent, formed governments for themselves. So just like the Mayfire Compact, we also find some statements of authority for the people to ordain a government in a type of enacting clause as used in the U.S. Constitution. We, the people of the United States, the same concept is found in every state constitution. We, therefore, the representatives of the people, do ordain and declare. Or we, the people of the state of Alabama, in order to establish justice. That's the Constitution of Alabama, 1901. All state constitutions now start with an enacting statement that identifies the authority for their existence. Consequently, the framers of these constitutions required that the laws of the legislature also be prefaced with an enacting clause to show the authority for its laws as had been done throughout history.
this um, where are we okay we'll read and study to a mandatory requirement of an enacting clause by an enacting clause the makers of the constitution intended that the general assembly should make its impress or seal as it were upon each enactment for the sake of identity and to assume and show responsibility. While the Constitution makes this a necessity, it did not originate it. The custom is in use practically everywhere and is as old as parliamentary government, as old as King's degree, and they even, even they borrowed it. The decrees of Cyrus, king of Persia, and each holy writ records records were not the first to be prefaced with a statement of authority. The law was delivered to Moses in the name of the great I Am and the prologue to the great commandments in no less majestic and impelling. But whether these edicts and commands be promulgated by the sovereign ruler or by petty kings or by the sovereign people themselves, they have always begun with such form as an evidence of power and authority. Much of what is often regarded as law or common law depends upon what has proven to be legally sound and commonly used in history. Thus many legal authorities have recognized the historical legacy of using an enacting clause, thus indicating it as a concept of fundamental law. The area of written laws in all times and all countries, whether the edicts of absolute monarchs, decrees of king and council, or the enactments of representative bodies, have always invariably in some form expressed upon their face the authority by which they were promulgated or enacted. The almost unbroken custom of centuries has been to preface laws with a statement in some form declaring the enacting authority. The propriety of an enacting clause in conformity to this ancient usage was recognized by the several states of the Union after the American Revolution when they came to adopt constitutions for their government. And without exception, so far as we can ascertain, express provisions was made for the form to be used by the legislative department of the state in enacting laws. Laws, whether by God or man, have at all times in history used an enacting statement to show the source and authority of the law enacted. That's the end of the reading portion of today's lesson. Now let me share one other phrase. I don't know if you've seen an old movie or not, but you'll see a policeman chasing someone and he'll say, Stop! In the name of the law. That phrase, name of the law, was another expression of authority. Hello. 
Somebody is making a great deal of noise. Hello. Did anybody? Did everybody get that? The name of the law is an, a an expression that was used in common law to relate <laughs> for the constable to really come along and do it to communicate an authority. Um, how many do we have one here? Seven. Okay, I'm ready to entertain questions. It's on this subject matter. Any problem discovering whether or not the enacting law, the enacting clause, has an has historical base with which you can expect to look for it in laws that really have the proper authority. Pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's it's and it's easy and it was a. I can see where it separated the writings. Now there is an offense. You can add that to a writing when it's not true. That's a counterfeit. That would be called color of law. That is a crime. You can't go to prison for pretending to write a law or pretending to enforce something as law, which is not. And as I mentioned yesterday, the largest single number of cases that the FBI has is ministers of government or, you know, bureaucrats exercising their authority and being charged by the other party with color of law saying there's a law when there was not now I'm going to wait to discuss the contractual nature and other things of our situation today until we cover things clear through the uh, subject matter jurisdiction because you need to get a feel for what the remedies are before we talk about how real existing situation. So um, I'm going to stop the recording at this time and